Isaiah 60, reading from verse number 1. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about, and see, all they gather themselves together, they come to thee. Thy sons shall come from far, and thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. Then thou shalt see, and flow together, and thine heart shall fear, and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. The multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto thee. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister unto thee. They shall come up with acceptance on mine altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Who are these that fly as a cloud and as the doves to their windows? And we know God will bless the reading of this as word to all of our hearts. Again, let us just bow in prayer, and we will look to the Lord for help as we come around His word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for thy presence with us already. We thank thee for the one of whom we have been singing, the one who does meet the needs of our souls, and who brings to the hearts of those who trust in him that sense of peace, satisfaction, that consolation that the gospel affords unto fallen sinners. We thank thee for the fullness that there is in Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the glorious gospel that we have to proclaim that is going forth across the nations still. And we thank the Lord that thou art using it, thou art applying it. It is being brought home to hearts by the Spirit of God. And there are those who are uh, been brought to know the Savior, brought into union with Him, and to benefit from all that is found in His finished work. And so, Lord, help us tonight as we think about uh, these verses before us, and as we consider thy word, may the Holy Spirit come down in power and touch our hearts. Bless us now, we do pray, and breathe on us from heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake and glory. Amen. Amen. Now, you may know that the book of Isaiah was originally written to the Old Testament church by the man whose name is given to this book, this man, Isaiah. In the very first verse of the book, his ministry is dated for us because he ministered during the reigns of a number of kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And that means that he ministered during the general period that ran from 740 to 680 B.C. This man, Isaiah, was a man who wrote a book that's has a central message to it, and that message, of course, is the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of all the prophets, he writes most about Christ. He writes 
uh, very clearly about the Savior, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and also his coming again. And that means that Isaiah's contribution to the message of redemption is full, it is profound, it is actually amazing uh, to our minds and to our hearts as we go through this book and we see how clearly this man saw the day of Christ and wrote about it. And of course, he was moved to do that by the Holy Spirit. Everything related to Christ is presented clearly by this prophet. In the context of Isaiah's central message, the message of Christ, his prophecy gives very clear views of the New Testament church times. This is the case in many parts of this prophecy. And the verses that we have read just now form one of those portions that clearly reveals what I call New Testament times. The passage that we've read was written to encourage the saints of God in Isaiah's own times and those of later centuries as well, on through, of course, right into the end of the Old Testament age. And even, of course, therefore, the New Testament church would have drawn much encouragement from what Isaiah had to write and had to reveal as he was moved by the Holy Spirit. And so the saints of all those eras were given a very clear revelation of rich blessing, blessing that was in many ways still future uh, beyond their days, that is, the days when Isaiah actually wrote. And we think about those people that did not live to see the realization of the blessed times that are in view in a passage like this. But recorded in these verses, there is a, a vision of the church of New Testament times experiencing and enjoying the wondrous seasons of the blessing of God through the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Looking at these verses, we can divide them into two portions. We have verses 1 and 2, where we have the church in her light, the church in her light, because verse 1 says, Arise, shine. That's, a, a, as it were, an exhortation to the Lord's church to shine, to send forth light. It says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen Upon thee, for behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And in those two verses, there's a wondrous promise of light and enlightenment in a world of darkness. A very clear promise of that wondrous time when light would shine forth in the midst of all the darkness. And verse Two, you read of the darkness that covers the earth and that covers its inhabitants. But as we have just seen, there's a prophecy of light and glory and brightness, a better day, a day enjoyed by the church of God through the coming of the Savior for the first time into this world and appearing as the light of the world. That's what these first two verses are telling us. That's the prophetic meaning of them. That's what Isaiah is revealing here. So you have the church and her light. But then you have also, in the second part of this reading, from verse 3 down to verse 8, you have the church and her largeness. The church and her largeness. Because we read here in these verses, from verse 3 through to verse 8, of a largeness 
that is brought about by the calling of a people out of the Gentile nations. And we should notice a number of very precise statements in these verses to that effect. Verses 3 to 5, especially you have a tremendous presentation of how the Lord was going to gather out a people. Verse 3 begins this way, The Gentiles shall come to thy light. And so the Old Testament church in verses 1 and 2 is told about a day of light and then about a day of largeness because to that light that's mentioned and revealed, it is said that the Gentiles shall come. They shall come to thy light, as it says there in verse number 3. And so we find, therefore, that there is this reference to the largeness of the church that is brought about as a result of the Gentiles being drawn out. And right down through these verses, you can see reference to the uh, Gentiles. Look again at verse number 5. It says toward the end of the verse, the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. And even verses 6 and 7 are describing how the Lord would meet the needs of the church and supply all that is required for her uh, ministry and for the presentation of the gospel. It refers there to material things and, and all of those blessings been brought in that by which the church would be enriched in order to carry out her ministry. So here is the church and her largeness. And it's in that context of the church and her largeness, growth and development, that verse 8 belongs. And that verse is a wonderful question uh, contained in it. Who are these that fly as a cloud and as the doves to their windows. In nature, this verse is expressing admiration and amazement both. And it's generated by the sight of converts. That's what's meant in verse number 8. Converts actually coming to Jesus Christ, flocking to Him as their Savior and their Redeemer, and doing so in large numbers. It says here in verse 8, Who are these that fly as a cloud? And what that means is a huge company, a cloud, a gathering of people. That's the sense of the first part of that question. Who are these that fly as a cloud? A cloud, a large number of people under the simile of a cloud. It says, who are these that fly as a cloud? And the simple thought is, the simple meaning is that here's a huge company, a large company, and they're represented as a cloud of people a great company of souls gathering to the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you tonight, let me say to you, this has happened down through the generations of time in New Testament days. We think of Pentecost itself. What a cloud there was that day in that sense of the use of the word. That company gathered into the kingdom of God all at once. In one day, 3,000 people. And then along after that, 5,000 people. As you turn to chapter 5 of Acts and on through and you find over one of the later chapters of Acts a reference to myriads of people which refers to thousands upon thousands who populated the church of God in Jerusalem. And so this was fulfilled remarkably in the early church at Pentecost and thereafter. But only then 
You take the Reformation period, the same thing happened. Who are these that fly as a cloud? The Reformation was a great revival. Or you go to the days of Whitfield and the amazing scenes that took place under his ministry. And I was just reading this the other day that on one occasion he preached to 10,000 people and 2,000 of them were converted on the spot. That's the kind of thing that God has done over and over again down through the ages of time. And then this is enlarged on in the second part of this verse where it says, and as the doves to their windows. So there is the symbolism of the cloud huge gathering of people like a cloud, and then the doves to their windows. Who are these that fly as a cloud? But then it goes on to say, and as the doves to their windows. And of course, the, the verb fly has to do with the doves. And the connection is there. So we just take it that way. Who are these that fly as the doves to their windows? And that's what I want to look at tonight. Converts to Jesus Christ symbolized by doves flying in huge numbers to their windows or to their, their dovecotes. That's what is actually meant. And you've heard of a dovecote and what it is. And it's a little edifice. It could be large or small. And sometimes it's cylindrical. Sometimes it's a dome shape and many other shapes. And if you look at a, a picture of a dovecote, you'll find it's full of little holes that allow the doves or the pigeons even to get into the dovecote. And that's the symbolism that God uses here. Isn't the Lord a wonderful author? He gets our attention. He gets our thoughts by something like this. And I want tonight just to bring this to you what an instructive symbol this is regarding those who are converted to Jesus Christ. They are depicted as doves flying to their windows. Now notice with me a number of truths from that imagery of the doves flying to their windows. And there are three thoughts I want to leave with you. I want to speak first of all about their sight. I mean the doves' own sight, what they actually see. Because they catch sight of the window, obviously. If you ever kept pigeons or maybe dolls, I don't know, you will have noticed how they're skilled at getting home. And they know exactly how to get back into the dovecote or the pigeon house, whatever it may be. They get their sight set on the entrance. That's the idea here. And therefore, this is what I mean by their sight. It's not their ability to see, it's what they actually do see. Yes, the ability to see is involved very clearly, but it's what they actually see. And so there's a focusing here on the eye of the dove. That's what I want you to think about. The eye of the dove. The sight that they have of that entrance into the dove coat. And we'll see more about that in a moment or two, what that actually means for the dove, what it provides for them. But go with me to the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon chapter 1. And you go through the Song of Solomon again. I preached through this book some years ago. And we preached, or we looked, I think, at 50 messages through the, the Song of Solomon. And if you go through the Song of Solomon, you will find that doves are mentioned a number of times. 
And here's the first one, the Song of Solomon 1 and verse number 15. It says, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Then it says, Thou hast dove's eyes. Now it's Christ who speaks in verse 15 here. And he speaks of his church and he says, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Then he says this, Thou hast dove's eyes. Now, in the Bible, the dove is symbolical of the Holy Spirit. Get this connection of thoughts into your mind. That's clear from what happened at the Lord's baptism. The Holy Ghost came down from heaven and came upon the Lord in the form of a dove. And therefore we have no doubt about this, that the dove in Scripture is a symbol of the Spirit of God. The Song of Solomon here actually uses the plural, thou hast dove's eyes. And you see the same in our text there in Isaiah chapter 60 verse 8. Uh, Who are these that fly as the doves, plural, to their windows? And so what we're looking at here is a collective body of people who are gathered onto Jesus Christ and they're given a sight that they need to be given. Uh, They are given a view that they must have of the dovecote and the windows into it. And we're finding that uh, the Bible speaks of Christians as having dove's eyes. And what that means is the Lord's people are a people whose eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit. They have dove's eyes, the dove, the symbol of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit opens up the eyes of their understanding. He gives them sight. He gives them a view that is saving. He causes them to to understand what they never understood before. They were blind. They were without sight. And then suddenly they get dove's eyes. The Spirit of God comes. He awakens them. He illuminates them. He gives them spiritual sight. He gives them spiritual understanding. And they're able to see what must be seen in order to be uh, a child of God, in order to be a Christian, in order to be right in union with Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 17, the Holy Spirit is described as the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. That's Christ. No man can have a knowledge of Christ, a saving knowledge of Christ, until he gets dove's eyes, until the Holy Spirit comes and takes away the darkness and the blindness and removes the veil and gives the light that is needed, the understanding, the revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's enlarged on in Ephesians 1.18 where it says, the eyes of your understanding being opened. And so sinners are given understanding of a spiritual kind and the result is that they fly to the dovecote. That's what our text is telling us. Who are these? It asks the question. But we're answering the question, who are these that fly as doves to their windows? They fly to the dovecote. They fly to Jesus Christ. And they come to rest in Him and upon His work that He has done for them. Why does the dove fly back to the dovecote? Because the dove needs rest. It needs 
to be brought to the point where there is rest for that little bird as it has flown here, there, and yonder, or taken a whole flock of them. And that's what's in view here. They've been flying. They have been uh, wherever they have been. And, and now they go back to the dovecote to find rest. Where is the first time in the Bible you read of the dove? Genesis 8. And what do you read there? Well, look at it with me. Genesis chapter 8. And there you read of the dove coming to rest. Genesis 8 and the verse number 8. It says also, that is Noah, also he, Noah, sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground, but the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. And she returned unto him into the ark. And so where there's the dove called that ark. And you see, when you think about this and bring it all together, Truly, Jesus Christ is the ark. Jesus Christ is the dovecote. And there's a way into Jesus Christ. There's an entrance by which the sinner is brought into union with Christ and the sinner finds rest for the soul. And therefore, when you think about these verses, they're all connected together by reference to the dove. You can see the wonderful a message of the gospel being, being presented to us and what happens when the sinner is given dove's eyes, an understanding of one's need, an understanding of an under the wrath of God, an understanding of what sin is all about and the danger that the, that the soul is in. And then there's a flying to Christ, to the dovecote, and entering into Him to find that blessed rest for the soul. Back there in verse 8 of Isaiah 60, before I leave this point about their sight, I noticed how the word window, windows is also in plural. The doves to their windows. Every dove has its own window. It's the sense of that language. It denotes that Jesus Christ is a personal Savior unto every sinner who's brought to Him. There's a window a window of opportunity, a window of entrance for every one of these doves. It says, who are these that fly as the doves to their windows? And the Lord is showing us that Christ is suited to meet the need of every poor sinner that's brought to Him. Every sinner finds his or her own way into Jesus Christ to find rest there and solace for the soul and for the heart and deliverance from sin and pardon and peace with God and cleansing in Jesus' blood. That's what every sinner finds because Jesus Christ is a personal Savior. They don't all go in through the one window in this sense of what we're saying tonight. Every sinner is drawn personally, drawn individually, and finds that all that's there for that sinner has also been discovered by all these other sinners. But it's a very personal thing for that individual. When you're truly, if you're truly saved, you know what I'm talking about. Christ is precious to you. He's precious to the brother or sister beside you, the doves along the row. But how precious he is to you, he's your Savior. You can say like Paul, the Lord loved me and gave himself for me, although he gave himself for all of his people, but it's very personal. 
And so this is the sight that these doves have. But very quickly, notice then secondly their swiftness. It says, who are these that fly as the doves to their windows? And so obviously that's the right action that's in view. They're flying, a dove flies. And so there's the thought there of swiftness. The dove is a very sensitive, tender bird. And the thought of flying here, or this swiftness, is very important because being a sensitive, tender kind of bird, it's aware of danger from many, many enemies. And so when it senses the danger or when the sense of the danger that might not have been there a few moments ago suddenly comes to that dove, it flies swiftly to the place of refuge, the safety. Is that not what the Lord is also showing us here? Not only do sinners receive a sight of where to go and to whom to go to find what they need for their pardon, their forgiveness, their cleansing, but they're also moved to run or to, as here, to fly to Jesus Christ, to go to Him swiftly to the place of shelter and safety. That's what a dovecote provides, as well as rest. It provides safety. It provides a refuge for the little bird or all those birds in that one flock. They find a refuge there. Over again in the Song of Solomon, I'll take you to another reference now where you read of the doves. The Song of Solomon 2 and verse number 14. And it says there, O my dove, this again is Christ speaking to His church. And using the word dove now collectively for the entire company of the Lord's people. Song of Solomon 2, 14. O my dove, that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs. Just take those opening words of that verse. The Lord is say, speaking collectively to the church as my dove. Oh, my dove. How the Lord loves His church. How He has got a, a union with the church. She's my dove, He says. But He goes on to speak of the dove as to where she is. She is now in the refuge of the clefts of the rock. I thought that very interesting. The word clefts is, pl is plural. You can see that. Now over in Exodus 34, is it? No, 32. Exodus 32, you read of the rock being cleft. But there's only one cleft mentioned there. And that's fine because Jesus Christ is the one who died once for his people. And only one cleft ever was made in that sense of things. But here it's plural. Oh my, oh my doll, thou art in the clefts of the rock. So there's only one rock, but here we're finding that there's a, a plurality of clefts. It's the same idea as I just mentioned. Everyone who's brought to know the Lord not only has his or her own window of entrance in that sense, but every Christian finds that there's a hiding place in Jesus Christ. No matter how large the company, everyone's accommodated. Isn't that wonderful? You don't look very excited. <laughs> or maybe you're gripped with this. I trust you are. 
But that is true, brethren and sisters. Jesus Christ, again, has been shown here as the one who suited to all our spiritual needs in that everyone who comes to find refuge in Jesus Christ finds that he personally washes away their sin. Sin is not washed away collectively. God did not, doesn't wash the whole church at one given time and that's it. No, everyone who's brought to Christ finds there's a cleft that's personal, that the Lord's wounds are very individualistic to that, to that, that man, that woman, that child, that young person who's truly converted onto the Savior. And so there are the clefts of the rock, but the point there in, second, uh, in, in Song of Solomon 2.14 is just this, that Christ is the rock smitten for sinners and He provides for them all these clefts, all these hiding places, all these refuges that He alone affords to those who come to know Him. Isaiah 55, or sorry, Psalm 55 verse 6 is an interesting verse just as we close this point and I'll mention another little point and then we will finish. But Psalm 55 verse number 6 and notice what the psalmist prays there. Psalm 55, 6. And I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then would I fly away and be at rest. And there's the Christian, maybe going through a difficult time, a, a day of affliction or trial or difficulty, but that individual realizes that there is a hiding place and the individual believer longs and prays for wings like a dove to fly away and be at rest, to get away from all of the, all of the stir and wickedness and turmoil of an ungodly world. You never feel like that. Now, you'd like a set of wings just to be able to get away from it all. And that's how the psalmist felt. And that's what he writes about here, that I had wings like a dove, for then would I fly away and be at rest. The thought of the swiftness getting away to rest and find consolation, find this shelter, this covering for the soul and swiftly getting in to all that there is in Jesus Christ. And then one final thought, who are these that fly as the doves to their windows? What is another reason why doves will fly to their windows or on into the dovecote? And it's simply this, here's their satisfaction because they know there's food for them. Why does a dove go to the dovecote? To feed, to go through, to go in and find that there's a provision there and that the window gives them access and entrance to that time when they can replenish their needs by feeding. What a word that is to us tonight, in Christ, what satisfaction. That's why we sang that hymn. We drank at the broken cisterns, but ah, the waters failed. Even as we stooped to drink, they fled and they mocked us as we wailed. Now none but Christ can satisfy. And so the Lord does satisfy the need of the heart 
And that's what the sinner finds, and the Christian, of course, on an ongoing basis. But you know, men and women, the world is full of people who are not satisfied. They're unhappy, they're miserable, and they get more miserable. It seems that the more they believe they have, the more miserable they become. Because those things do not satisfy the soul, do not meet the need of the heart. It is only Christ who satisfies. And therefore, as the doves fly to their windows, and they do so because they've been given a sight that takes them home, and they go swiftly to find the refuge that's there, so they also go to get the satisfaction that's found in what is provided for them. And let me tell you, there's no limit in Christ. There's no lack. There's no want in what He does for the soul. He does meet the need of all the hearts of His people. You can come to the table. You can come to uh, Christ, and, and you'll find that even though a multitude have been fed and replenished and, and so on, yet there's always enough. The gospel table is spread. There's no lack there. No, there's no, there is no a shortage of satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And that's, of course, the byproduct of our salvation. It's not that we come to the Lord to be satisfied. We come to the Lord to be saved. But when the Lord saves us, He satisfies the heart and meets the need of the soul and does so for the rest of our days. Let us therefore feed on Him. Let us take from Him what is there. Let us enjoy what we find in our blessed Redeemer day by day. Oh, my friend, the dove coat is there. The windows are open. Therefore, keep your eyes on those, dove, on those windows and fly swiftly every day and don't miss out in getting in there beside the Lord to feed, to fill your soul with what you need and pray that God will do this among many in these days and may we see that kind of scene when many will fly to the dovecotes and through the windows into union with our Savior. May the Lord bless His Word to all of our hearts and use it to encourage us and to stir us up as we await it before Him tonight.